Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, gang. Have you checked out Aussie Strength? It's a company that makes legit workout equipment. And it's a veteran-owned business who are not only controlling the narrative, but controlling the market. These guys put as much passion and effort into their business as they put into their military service. They have rigs, bumper plates, in fact, thousands of things on their website for all you fitness fanatics. If you're considering fitting out a home gym or a large-scale industrial-type gym, then they've got everything you need. And you just have to check out their website. It's amazing. I'm not joking. I approached these guys to do an advert for them, truly. I was that impressed by their company. Check out the website, and if you use the code WARRIOR10, that's WARRIOR10, you'll get 10% off your purchase. That's Aussie Strength. Check out their Instagram too. Some great motivational content. Let's get on with the show. Break, break, break. Bulldog 7, this is Blue 1. Troops in contact. Coordinates to follow. Platoon location. Uniform three five five eight. Fower three two one. How copy over? A sense of purpose, but it drove uh, an emotional connection to that sense of purpose, to where every night our actions, kind of uh, based on that, dictated exactly how we were going to uh, conduct the operations. Yeah. And so we were we were we were really aggressive, really violent, and we had no mercy when it came to you know you know, getting on target and making sure we were taking care of business because at that time period, you know, bad guys were fighting uh, for their lives and, you know, we, we didn't show any mercy, obviously, as in war. But, yeah, man, it's, it's, it is bittersweet because the reality is no matter how many bad guys you kill in a, in a career span, uh, you know, whether it's your brothers, your peers, or your eventually your sons, they're going to be still fighting the same bad guys. For some reason, I went to a briefing with the uh, the ODB commander in Kandahar, and we went into the base there where, where you guys were set up. I had a few had a few of my young commandos with me, and we walked into the hallway through the to so go through the doorway into that into that hall that leads down to um, to the office spaces, and just along all the wall there is all the USSF guys that have been killed. And you know, for for a small force like ours to look around, and there's an, there's enough names there to fill our regiment almost. You know, it was yeah. really it was a really humbling, you know, and I suppose that's the effect that, that that you're trying to achieve as well. You know, is to say, hey, we're not, we don't, we don't fucking forget. You know, and we were we were looking at each other, going, holy shit, <laughs> like this is. And I think that we had a newfound respect then for USSF guys, and especially especially when we would go anywhere with there'd be thirty of us, and then and then there'd be a partner force. You know, there'd be thirty of us, and then there'd be a wider company group of commandos as well. You know, we were, and um and then we'd have our our Afghan commandos or or PRC guys. And, you know, and then we'd come across a, an ODA, you know, doing a VSO somewhere. And you're like, holy shit, you're out in the badlands, like no, no support. And there's like maybe six to eight to 12, depending on what, what was out there. 
Yeah, it's full on. So I, I um, yeah, the reason I wanted to really talk to you is to talk to you about, or as well as talking about military service, is to talk a little bit about um, your experience. You know, and obviously you know Tony Rockoff as well, and that would be interesting for some people to hear. Um, but also to talk talk about talk about what you're doing now. Perhaps we we'll chat about Tony first. So so you, what year did you meet Tony Rockoff? So me and Tony met in. Uh I think it was 2000, had to have been 2009 or 2010, somewhere around there. And we met in actual, uh, it was a course called Advanced Tactical Infiltration Course. And it was a new course that special operations started uh, for, for at least for USSF because mm-hmm. they saw that there was a, a higher likelihood as we uh, grew in the war to do free fall insertions, you know, halo and hey ho free fall insertions. And I know Tony was invited because he was one of the senior instructors at the schoolhouse for freefall. Yeah. And also, and also because, you know, you know, and this is for the American, American side as an education, we, a lot of people don't realize that you guys do domestic work. Mm. You know, the commandos are heavily involved with uh, combating domestic terrorism because of the threat via the ocean that you're surrounded by. So, you know, there's a viability in it for both, for both countries. And, you know, we met at the schoolhouse, became really good friends really, really quickly. You know, he knew I was a special operations guy. He knew I was a senior guy and, you know, in, in good, uh, you know, tradition and fashion, he used to bust my balls all the time. And so we went back and forth and what we were doing was dangerous. I mean, we were doing, you know, halo infiltrations, pushing the limits, you know, with canopy control, doing it at night, mm. full combat equipment, navigating ourselves uh, in the night. Mm. And so we learned a lot from Tony and, you know, I had a, uh, a lot, I earned a lot of respect. Uh, he earned a lot of respect from me that, that rotation of training because uh, of his capabilities. So yeah, I, I love Tony. He's a, he's a great, we became fr- friends very fast mm. uh, in a short period of time. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew him from the start of the, you know, the commando unit who's one of the, one of the first guys there. And it didn't surprise me at all that he had done what he, what he, what he did, you know, with that young guy. Yeah, you know, it just didn't even surprise me when I found out about it. It upset me, but it didn't surprise me. Yeah, for those, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I uh, when I heard a buddy of a mutual buddy of all of ours named James Adams uh, contacted me and he told me what had happened, mm. and then uh, we had heard a little bit about the the situation where where you could speculate, but I, I already knew um, based on knowing what kind of guy Tony was that yeah, uh, his actions were um, meant to save that kid's life, which he did. Yeah, I mean, all the findings show that he positioned himself so he'd wear the brunt of it, which is, as you know, is difficult to do unless you're pretty, unless you're a pretty experienced, you know, parachutist Absolutely. anyway. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's sort of a bittersweet, you know. Um, yeah. So do you know you you would you may know or may not know one of the guys who I've interviewed before, which is KC Finnegan, Kevin Finnegan. Yeah, I've heard his name. Yeah, I know about him. Yeah, he's a good good mate of mine, and he he's got some pretty awesome stories and he he you know um, he chose to get out well really at the you know as a captain at the top of his career he chose to get out his wife was a, an attack helicopter pilot as well and they got out at the same time and just it surprises me how many how many people around the time that osama bin laden you know was killed that just went yep okay job done you know yeah oh yeah was that the same for you yeah. was it michael yeah you you know for for me i remember early on in the war I still had a lot of fight in me, and and there and, and I actually remember making fun of contractors because I'm like, you know, look at these guys profiteering off off of the war, and how could you not want to be in special operations doing the deed that you trained so hard to do, mm. 
And so, you know, that, that was a continual process. And as I, as I moved up through the ranks, you know, from cell leader to team sergeant to even sergeant major, I started to, to view uh, operations and what we did differently. And so I, my whole thing was, you know, what kind of impact could I make and where was I best served? And, you know, I could have stayed in an elite counterterrorism unit that I was in. I could have stayed in that position and, you know, carried a ladder and did the hard work, you know, rotated in the combat again and again and again. But I kind of figured for me that, you know, as I was evolving, that there was something out there that was different. So I, I started chasing the rainbow and, and I, I earned my college degree while on active duty. That took me 15 years. And I was like, you know, now I'm going to go into the government aspect of it and see if I could do more work. Mm. But, you know, slowly I realized in that process of contracting for two to three week, uh, two to three years after the fact and doing reserve time on the side, I realized the political climate wouldn't allow me to operate like I wanted to operate. You mm. know, uh, at periods of time when I was on active duty as a Green Beret, the gloves came off and we were able to operate and do our job. Um, but at the time uh, in which I decided to, to part ways, we were at a stalemate. And, and, and our political system. So a lot of it played into politics. And I said, why would I waste years of my life trying to get into the fight when I could do something for myself for once? Yeah. And, you know, and guys who stayed in, uh, they weathered the storm. And on the back end of that, with a, a change in administration, the gloves came off again for Syria and they were able to do good work. Um, I don't regret that at all because in, in a different capacity, I feel like I've been serving Mm. Uh, just not not in the way that I would ideally want to, which is killing bad guys on the battlefield, obviously. Yeah, yeah, fair call. And they say that, you know, they say that you're basically the product of the people you hang around with. You know, there's sort of seven people or those great people. So I'm just wondering, sort of, why do you hang around with Kurt, man? <laughs> I know, I always ask myself every day, why, why is Kurt here? I was his boss on active duty and now I'm his boss now. I'm like, what is, why is this dude hanging around? I crack up every <laughs> time. Every, every time I see an Instagram story where you're like, Kurt, Kurt, and he's like, what, man? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, I've known Kurt for so many years, but, you know, being around Kurt, you know, we were, we were snipers on the same team. I was actually a cell leader, but uh, to, to have him around, it almost is nostalgic because it feels like... Mm. You know, we're back in the team room a bit, and it, it actually helps. I think I think I pay Kurt, even if he didn't work hard, I pay him just to hang out because it, it makes it it makes it feel like it's home again. You know? Yeah, yeah, fair call. <laughs> so, what what is it that that you do now, Mike? What's the? Tell me about your business. You know, I, I started. I was actually, you know, the story goes, you know, I was contracting, and and I had a Navy SEAL partner uh, who was with me, and you know, I used to. We were in Pakistan at the time, and I used to. Uh, talk about our future and we would brainstorm and, and then one of the brainstorm sessions we had was talking about survival and hey like what's the options for us outside of tactical training which is typically what you see from from our um our generation and our genre yeah so i you know i wanted to do something different because i have a lot of you know like most special operations guys i have a lot of passions you know I, i'm a, i like photography i like writing i like the arts, but I also like, you know, tactics and fitness and everything. And, and it occurred to me that, you know, after coming out of a career, that it wasn't just luck that I survived a whole bunch of close calls in combat and we made it through. Uh, me and the majority of my guys made it through. Uh, and it, it was associated with the fact that we had an understanding, a deliberate understanding of survival and how you plan, how you have your mindset, how you physically train, how you prepare. Hmm. And a lot of those things 
if deciphered properly, could help civilians kind of deal with the same issues. And it doesn't have to be surviving a gunfight. It could be it could be surviving uh, mindset. It could be surviving, uh, you know, a divorce, you know. And so a lot of that translated. So I figured, hey, why not try this? So I started Fieldcraft Survival, did the logo actually in Pakistan, registered the company, and then spent uh, the first six months figuring out how I was going to make money doing it. Mm. Uh, took a lot of notes, read a lot of books. And, and, and sorted it out. So today, you know, our mission statement is preparing civilians for the worst case scenario and mindset, training and equipment and continue, continually, uh, just like the military, research and developing and coming up with new tactics, techniques and procedures to improve their quality of life and preparedness. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a journey and it's been uh, a difficult one, but it's it's so worthwhile. Yeah. And so, I mean, the market is absolutely saturated with people teaching, you know, gunfighting. But then the the issue I've got with our generations after us is they're not really human anymore. They can't do anything that humans should be able to do. Can't can't light a fire, can't build a shelter, can't skin an animal, hunt an animal, can't fish. And I think that what you're what you're doing, I mean the mindset obviously is a big part of that. And what you're doing is saying, Hey, this is this is something you need to do to to actually be a human because because all most people are these days is you know just bags of bone and flesh that live inside four walls and are connected to each other by electronics but if you put them out in the wilderness for more than half an hour you know then they break down yeah absolutely i i i can't agree more i i I, I've understood now that, you know, being in the military where, you know, you build a foundation of training and, you know, you instill uh, this mindset, which some people would call propaganda, but I call values mm. uh, that, you know, if, if properly translated in the civilian sector, um, it could, it could greatly benefit civilians who don't have that. You know, I could take, I could take like a civilian who, who doesn't have a father figure. Who, who doesn't have uh, anybody teaching them anything. And you come to realize that um, people are lost and they're looking for answers that we fortunately have the opportunity through our military profession of uh, belonging to community and being instilled with values, going through training processes and, and building foundation and building off that foundation, which made us better uh, prepared by default. And so that level of resiliency and mindset, when you translate it to a civilian, that's what people are looking for. And, and like you linked it to technology, you know, the, one of the problems with technology that I've seen is technology is actually taking away that connection more so than not. And so you might be inundated with information, but you have the emotional gap um, that's, that's you know, completely being uh, increased as technology increases in our lives. So, you know, it's personalizing training. It's mm communicating about emotions it's being being fucking real because nobody wants to be real anymore mm. it's telling people hey it's okay to be vulnerable it's okay to be a man and actually say what your weaknesses are because that's what's going to make you better mm. and so all of that is encompassed into our mission statement in business because uh to be honest you know there is no other way for us we can't we can't pretend to be something we're not. And so we're not going to, and we're just going to do what we do. And if it resonates, it resonates. If it doesn't, you know, cheers. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's done. Yeah. Of course it's going to, of course it's going to resonate because people, people want mentors. You know, that's what I've found as well with my business is that people just want mentors. They want someone to look up to. They want anything to look up to in order to fulfill their mission. You know, and I think we forget, you know, we forget what it's like to be a 17, 18 year old kid wanting to join the military and then idolizing all these people that have been there. Suddenly we're in our 40s 
we're the we're the guys that these people are idolizing, and we're forgetting we're forgetting that we were doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a responsibility. I just like you, you know, have picked up the mic and then actually, you know, open your mouth to voice, you know, improving values and characters. It's the same thing. It's like, you know, we have the torch. Uh, that torch doesn't somehow go out because we 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 finish serving our enlistment contractually. Mm. Mm. In fact, more so, the flame increases, and now we have a, a a bigger burden of responsibility, which is mentoring the next generations of warriors of of men of women that that want to learn. They're hungry for learning, but they just don't know what they don't know. Yeah. So I I, I think it's a fun uh, and exciting venture because now we are uh, the people that we we looked up to when we were children and somebody has to take that torch and pass it. And it's, and it's, and it's our, it's our turn to do that. Yeah. So what, you know, what's some of the, what's some of the leadership sort of stuff that you learned when you're in the, in the SF groups, like what's some of the, some of the leadership principles that you learned? You know, we partly, um, I keep it basic. And one of the most important aspects of leadership that I've known is, is, uh, we call it, we call it be no do. And, you know, just speaking on that specifically, you, you have to you have to be a leader. And, and and when it's time to step up, you have to take action and not just, uh, you know, not just assume that somebody else is going to pick up the responsibility. I, I, I'm big on informal leadership. So leaders, uh, I was a leader even when I wasn't a leader mm. because I saw that there were opportunities to step up and lead. So I knew I had to be a leader even when I wasn't designated a leader. Mm. And so as a leader looking at my informal leaders, it's it's capitalizing on those people, which is just really a, a more maybe a more complex way of saying you have to take advantage of, of the opportunities and the people that you have around you. Mm. And so you could be a big you could be a great leader in your head. Um, but if it's not translating through a community of people where you're influencing them to be better people, mm. Uh, then, then you're not leading anything. Yeah, uh, you're, you're just leading your, yourself. Knowing the job is important and critical because if you expect, if you have an expectation, uh, no matter what it is in anything that you do, and you don't understand the own principles you're trying to instilling, then you, you're just a uh, emulator. You're just replicating some other process, and so you're you're just talking the talk. So you need to be able to be the best. You know, when I was a team sergeant in special forces and I had snipers, I used to have um, com- competitions and physical fitness and shooting and all the things that were required of us in jobs and skill sets. And then what I would do was I would annotate all that on a spreadsheet and I would mark that spreadsheet in red, yellow, and green. And then I would blow that up into big, large italics and put it on my team room door for the entire company to see. Mm. Because I wanted, I wanted the company to know that we hold ourselves accountable for our own standards. Mm. And if you're in the yellow, you better get your ass grinding because you need to be in the green. Mm. If you're in the red, you're looked at your at by your peers and yourself, and you should step up to the plate or get get the hell out of the team room. Mm. Um, so having the accountability in, in your own individual skill sets, and and last lastly is do which is you could talk and you could conceptualize and you could develop the best plan on the, in the world. And Green Berets are very good at the military decision-making process or, or, or contingency-based planning. But if you can't see a plan through action, through execution, to lead to our end result, uh, then, you, then you might as well be a philosopher. Mm. Because the only thing you're doing is, is, uh, is being creative in your approach to planning. 
but planning requires you to do exactly the actions required to meet that end state. And so uh, you can't just be a leader and disseminate information and expect it to just, just fly away and be a home run or a success. Mm. You actually have to manage processes all the way through to the end. And I'm a big believer, I'm a big believer in uh, instilling the values that you have in yourself as a leader into your subordinates and making them better men first and foremost. Yeah. It's not about making them a better soldier or making them a better tactician. If you actually focus your effort on making them a better person, then the base is going to be a healthy base or foundation for them to propel their skill sets on top of hardcore values that you've instilled in them and being a better warrior. Yeah, I like it. So you need to be what a leader is, know what a leader knows, and do what a leader does. It's pretty simple. Exactly. 100%. Very simple, man. Yeah, I was uh, I was the same I was the same as you, you know, when I wasn't a leader, I was a an informal leader, and I look at that now and I and I teach now understand the micro leader in your group because in order to in order to get people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it, you need to be able to reach out to those micro leaders and have influence over them because otherwise they'll they'll undermine you. And yeah, and people think manipulation is a bad word, but it's not. You know, we're doing it. We do it all the time when we meet people in the street, when we talk to salespeople. You know, we're always manipulating. As long as you understand that manipulation is an extension of leadership, you know, and as long as it comes from the right place. So like, for instance, if, if some of my guys were, were digging shell scrapes and I'd finished digging my shell scrape, I'd haul my ass over to their pits and start helping them dig their shell scrapes, for instance, let's say, rather than rather than go off and, and make the excuse that I've got to write orders for tomorrow. And the reason I'd be over there digging a shell scrape with them, probably under duress, <laughs> is is because I'm manipulating them for later on when I want to call on it. Um, I was talking to a young guy today and, and we, were, we were discussing this this very thing, you know. And you don't necessarily want to be there helping them out digging their shell scrapes, but it is a form of manipulation. You're doing it under sort of almost false pretenses, but that starts to become a habit over time. Suddenly you become selfless and you're like, Hey man, I've got to walk around and check all the guys, even though it's minus three degrees. I've got to go. You know, we've just got back from this mission. They're all men and blooming fifty cows and Mark Nineteens on top of vehicles. I could quite easily get into the back of my vehicle and go to sleep now. But if I show my face at every single one of those vehicles before the night's out, they all they all they know the drill. They know I'm walking around doing this because I have to because I'm the leader. But they also deep down respect the fact that you know the boss hasn't just fucking peeled off and gone to bed. You know. Um, yeah, I think manipulation too often is seen as a bad word when it comes to leadership. Do you know what I mean by that? You're absolutely right, man. I, I actually, my brain's uh, doing cheetah flips because I, I, I actually haven't thought about it that way, but I actually whole, wholly agree with you because, you know, what, what I think of it as is it's it's part of it is an empower, it's empowerment, right? Because when you empower your subordinate leaders who are informal leaders, uh, you're affecting the masses more optimally. Mm. And so when you're manipulating uh, behavior, right? Yeah. When you're manipulating behavior, you are actually optimizing choices. Mm. You're optimizing good decision-making amongst your your, uh, your subordinate group. Mm. So like you said, if you, if you go out and let's say that the you don't have an end result, but we could actually manifest an end result. Let's say you're going out and you're taking care of the guys. So you have a ration of bread and you're walking around breaking off a ration of a candy bar and it's the last candy bar in the patrol. But when you do that, what you're doing is creating an emotional connection, letting your guys know that you care about them. Mm. And then when the time comes, 
which is critical. When the time comes where action needs to be um, needs to take place in a instance, and there's no second guessing, that you've actually reduced the time in which they doubt you, mm. or the t- or the or the decision in which they say, I-, "I trust this leader, and I'm going to do everything I can instantaneously to make this happen." Mm. So then you get better result, and you get this optimization of effective uh, leadership that actually is. Uh, resulting in an action that that means something more yeah and so i i absolutely agree with that and i think i think what i used to do right when i was a young leader is i used to emulate what other leaders did mm. and so i would say oh this leader never sleeps before his guys he never eats before his guys and i would do those things but not really know why mm. yeah Oh, absolutely. As I become a, a more senior leader, I started realizing that in the behavior that uh, I engaged with my subordinates, I had to deliberately inject and plan accordingly instances where I had to manipulate their behavior. Mm. So I had to go around and go, hey, guys, I want to get your feedback, even though I didn't need their feedback. Mm. Or, hey, guys, um, let's go out and eat dinner together, mm. even though we didn't need to do that. But I need I needed to bring the morale of the troops together. Mm. So it, what's, what's uh, awesome about what you said is, is the fact that after you do that, you build a habitual routine that becomes your behavior and your pattern. Mm. And that kind of routine, once instilled, is going is to lead, lead you to like an optimized process, which is going to make you a better leader in the long run. Mm. And, and I, I like that because, you know, when I did that and I saw other guys who were underneath me emulating me, I knew it was effective. I knew they were learning through the same process and that eventually when they became leaders, yeah, they might falter, but they had ingrained in them a lot of behaviors that were going to make them um, a good leader in the, in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the problems in the Australian army and the regular infantry, and I'm sure it's similar in America is that we, or, or what they do is, is they promote the guys and at the earliest possible possible opportunity, they start to segregate the junior leaders away from the men. Whereas in special forces, it's almost at almost at the master sergeant, you know, RSM sort of level where they start to to be removed all the way up there, not down as a lance corporal or you know. So it's, a, it's so for so for you know for me, if there's anyone listening from the, from the wider infantry, you know, spend more time with you guys as long as you can because that's that's where the rubber hits the road. You know, for leadership, in my mind. Yes, it, it's a you know, it's a it's probably an English rooted uh, task organization in and yeah. process where you know back in the day you needed troops to do specific actions on the battlefield and, and their battle drills because you needed instant results. If that was standing in a line and 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 in a barrage of gunfire uh, fire and taking casualties then that's what you needed them to do. So it's very doctrinal. What we've realized in the evolution of combating uh, terrorism is the fact that uh, you're not going to have the opportunity to segregate. You're, you're not going to have be afforded the opportunity to uh, lead mass movements. Mm. When you're doing guerrilla warfare and unconventional warfare, irregular warfare, you're going to be living in bands together and your men have to respect you. When you start segregating guys you start losing rapport. You start losing morale, and so yeah, there 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 definitely needs to be an evolutionary process. And you know, at the small unit level, there is requirements. You know, hey, you have to have your fire team leaders, your squad leaders, your section troop mm. uh, leaders to be able to disseminate information. Yeah, 
But when it comes to ta battlefield tactics and rapport building, there's no reason they can't be together. In fact, historically, some of the best conventional forces that have that have migrated to unconventional tactics have had the best results. Mar yeah. Marauders, Darby Rangers, uh, and the list goes on. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I wholly agree, man. It's, it's something that we definitely need to look at. And I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, they shouldn't have their own room as Lance Corporals and Corporals, you know, to, to go and hide away from, from the guys, you know, from the soldiers. Yeah. That's just, I, I heard that today and I was absolutely, you know, gobsmacked that that's what's happening in, in the wider infantry, that they're, they're segregating them at that early stage. I think it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, considering absolutely. considering when I was a platoon commander of, a, of an SF, you know, commando platoon, we would, this, the platoon sergeant and I might have our own office to get paperwork and shit done, but otherwise we'd, we're out in the, you know, either out in the field, out in the armory, out in the, you know, out working on the vehicles or out doing something with the guys. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Hey, what's yeah. some of the what's some of the courses that um, Fieldcraft Survival run? So we're, right now, man, we're doing, so we do gunfighter, typical gunfighter courses where we teach uh, gunfighting and, and we concentrate our efforts on fundamentals of gunfighting, which, which we've learned through, you know, warfare and the studying of this stuff that, you know, you don't have to have a lot of tactics or experience to be able to, to reference some fundamentals that will save your life in a gunfight. Mm. There's the priority shift. Mm. And so what we what we see in tactics as um, kind of like the standard operating procedures in war do not directly translate to a civilian defending their life in a gunfight. Mm. So, so we have an efficient process of that at, at pistol, carbine, and tactical training courses. We also just teamed up with North American Rescue, and we offer the tactical combat casualty care courses that teach civilians how to save their own life with tourniquets yeah, um, man. you know whether it's gunshot wounds or accidents mm. you know th this stuff happens all the time um and next weekend we're teaching a an overland survival course where we load up in our rigs mm. go off-roading but we stop and teach them bushcraft we stop and teach them how to apply a tourniquet mm. Uh, we talk. We stop and talk about land navigation mindset. Um, so we're, dude. We're honestly we're all over the place because the genre is wide. But just like we were in special operations, I mean, you got to be a jack of all trades, and there's no reason why uh, you know they can't have a. We can't provide a pool of content and training courses that address all these things that we dealt with in special operations. Yeah, that's cool. How many people would you get on the on the courses? So it depends, you know, carbine courses, we'll have 20 plus people each course. We had, if it's a survival seminar where we talk about survival, we have hundreds of people show up. Wow. If it's a, if it's a uh, overland course, we, we limited it to 10 rigs, uh, 10 vehicles, so we could uh, spend more time, intimate time with the uh, mm. our clients. So it varies, but, you know, we, we problems with building courses nowadays. You are living the dream. It is a dream, man. I'm 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 really blessed to have this opportunity, and yeah, there's no doubt I'm living it. Yeah, so you you're basically cruising around teaching people how to how to use weapons. You're taking guys four wheel driving and camping, and showing them how to do it how to do it with not much, and then how to do it with a lot. I'm assuming, and then you get to 
pack rooms and talk about survival and leadership and all that sort of stuff it's basically everything that we did but just teaching it i mean it yeah. literally is like becoming a teacher you know and and uh in the, in the process or the chain of life and it's it's actually really rewarding and it, it's it's one of the only things that i could really do at this point in my life and career yeah. uh, that would make me happy so it seems like the only drawback is sort of hanging out with what kurt i guess he's gonna be like who is this guy who's, ta- who's this guy targeting me from australia what the f-? it's funny because now that the, the name kurt right it, it used to be carl right <laughs> It used to be Murphy. Now oh, was it? Now it's Kurt. <laughs> um, yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you worked with 2 Commando Regiment a few times. Um, I know you worked with Cansoff when when the guys from 2 Commando came and sort of got their ass out of a gunfight and then they all got on a schnook and left left the fucking commando, the commando unit sitting there, the, Q- the QRF. It's like, uh, you just left us here. <laughs> Which was which is fine because it was sort of one of those defining moments of our unit's history, you know. I think, and 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 no one was killed in that, which was you know thankful. Um, yeah. But yeah, you did work. You did work with with uh, two commando guys, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I worked with them in in different countries, and I I you know I, it's it's bizarre because we you know in special forces we never realized that you know the the countries in which we're most linked to which is australia britain and canada um started all this before we did mm. you know we, we we're we're the newest players to the game so it's it's kind of awe inspiring to to sit down with commandos uh, I've, I've actually sat down with commandos in combat and had conversations on ttps on, on tactics and 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 talking about the same problem sets that that both units deal with but there's no difference mm. in the makeup, the character, the men. Yeah. I mean, literally, you could take, you know, uh, you know, a, a Brad Connolly or Tony Rokoff and implant them into a detachment mm. or in charge of a detachment, and it would be little to no difference. And yeah. That's, that's what I love about the uh, the continuity and the relationship that we have uh, between the countries. Yeah, we we had a we had a job with with third group where. Uh, with one of the ODAs where um, they had their Kandak commandos sort of pinned down inside a village and we rocked up and and um, they had, I think they had 20 buildings on the outside of, of the village that, that they couldn't get to and they were getting a lot of fire from those buildings. My my unit had just come off the national counterterrorism team the year before so sort of, you know, fighting and build up areas is sort of our thing. And the uh, the ODA commander said to me, "Oh, you know, can can you take your platoon and go down there and, and clear those buildings?" I said, "Look, I can't because I've got this other task I've got to do, but I can give you five guys." And he's like, "Well, that's better than nothing, I guess." And uh, those five guys cleared those twenty buildings in about an hour and a half, and and I mean proper clearance. And the the ODA the ODA at the end was like, "Who the fuck are you, dudes?" You know, because he saw these, he saw that you know well blowing doors in and making proper you know like proper proper domestic ct type stuff because you know we eat that stuff up it's what we do and um yeah, yeah. The, the major the major difference and and, and it, it boggles my mind why why we don't have this uh figured out more so the major difference is you guys when you're when you're off uh, out of the combat zone are technically in a domestic combat zone uh doing work and learning tactics as you develop. Yeah. So we, we have these spikes of ups and downs where we learn and then we lull. 
but but to be completely engaged, um, you know, outside of your your rest cycle, to be completely engaged and learn and then apply what you're learning domestically, even t- talking to Tony about doing maritime operations yeah. and then applying those to maritime operations in Africa and the Middle East. It's like, man, that, that, that learning curve to be able to operate like that for us in America would make our force just so much better. But obviously, you know, the laws that we have in place, they don't allow us to do that. But they, mm. we lose a lot in that wall um, yeah. when we're not operating like that. Yeah, and we, we draw a lot of, you know, we work with HRT and um, the DEA uh, and CANSOF, and, and so we take a lot of, a lot of our experience comes from those guys that go out there and work with them, and then they bring bring things back, and then we amend TTPs. Um, awesome. Yeah, it's good, but I mean, the ODA, I mean, the ODA is a different beast anyway, you know, or, you know, the, the, the USSF anyway, because they, you know, they're, they're, they're designed to overthrow governments, really, if you look at it. It's guerrilla warfare 101. It's stuff that is a lot more complicated under the under the covers than than people give it credit for, you know. And though and those USSF guys weren't really being used in their full capacity in in Afghanistan in the time I was there. They were like village security operation does not overthrow governments. You know, it's an inkblot theory, but it's not using the guys in the best way. You know, they're not. Whereas when they went in the first time, like I think we talked about 19th group, you know, when they first went in there and they're, they're raising armies. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, the, the way they look at initially, you know, you don't know your capability until you test your capability. And mm. then it's almost like we validated the capability. And then at some point we just lulled and went, oh, wait, anybody could do this. And, you know, I, the, the U.S. Army actually went through a time period uh, that's that's thus passed, but uh, they're trying to stand it up again where they go, well, hell, a Green Beret teaches that anybody can teach. Let's just train the regular army to do that. No. It's like you can't take a yeah, you can't take a bloke from from uh, from Ohio who's 25 years old who has no life experience who's in the infantry and then apply them on the battlefield to do uh, diplomatic level engagements yeah. uh, or rapport building with uh, village elders uh, without the education process or yeah. without the experience. So yeah, exactly. I think all units are highly underutilized in in the global war on terror. Yeah, and the, and the ODA should be a framework. You know, that team should be a framework as a headquarters for... They become the headquarters for a huge, you know, force underneath them. So they need to be able to... Yeah, they need to be... A, like your int guys, you, you know, should be... He's running battalion int now. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. Capacity I, building. I never... You know, I, I've done a lot of... I did five trips to Iraq, and, and uh, I ran a lot of counterterrorism forces that were indigenous, that were Iraqi... And what I never realized uh, that we never did is we never took our conventional forces, our conventional infantry, and leveraged them like we leverage an indigenous host nation force. Oh, man, that's a good so, idea. Hmm. Yeah, if we, if we had a company of Green Berets, we could, we could manage an entire battalion or regiment hmm. of regular army guys and then leverage that capability in training, advising them, and then operating with them on the battlefield. But, you know, obviously... There's a force multiplier. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch. We get force multiply and saturate entire um, regions of that country and combat it, but we just never did anything like that, which is it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. It's like turbocharging your infantry almost. Exactly. It's like accelerating. Yeah. It's amplifying what you have already in your in your current arsenal. It's just optimizing it. I've seen, you know, there's guys like yourself and, and, and Kurt as well with his, with his Instagram profile and his books and the like. And then you've got uh, Jocko Willick, you know, and there's, 
it seems to me like the the days of the the USSF and you know seals and you know and other other agencies you know the, their leadership is really what's sought after at the moment and they're becoming celebrities through it you know yeah I, I, it's it's interesting to see you know seals are very good at their own public relation i don't know if it's instilled in them in buds or in their training but it's it's interesting to see that there's not a lot of guys in the seal community that are just guys Mm. that are stepping up to be able to be put in that limelight. Um, but I, I think it's valuable. I think, I think like Jocko, for example, he has something to say, and I think it's important. Um, I, I just want to see more guys who are just guys. Mm. You know, like I consider myself a guy, just one of the guys. I mean, mm. I've done a lot of combat. I've done a lot of operations, but I don't, I don't consider myself a hero or anything special. Mm. But I, I've observed a lot of guys that I consider heroes and guys that are special. And telling that story is important. Mm. And so, you know, I'd like to see more guys who come out, talk about the, themselves less and talk about uh, the other guys more. Nice. And, or guys guys who are just guys uh, who did the job come out and talk about the, the actual experience in the job and not inflate it with some kind of uh, rhetoric or, you know, kind of know. bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I agree. I mean, I, I agree totally. There's a certain amount. You can't get fat eating humble pie, you know. So if you're wrong, <laughs> if you're wrong, you're wrong. Yeah, you know, if you're wrong, That's you're wrong. True. And I, and I think that I know where you're going at, going with that. I quite like Jocko's take on it. You know, I'm not a big fan of snowflakes either. But there also comes a time when fuck man, when you've got to sleep in, you can't get up at 4:32. You know, there comes a time when yeah. there has to be some, there has to be a little bit of give and take in your life for the people around you to actually you know survive what you're putting them through um i do think sf guys have got a place in in society after they leave sf and it shouldn't be oh well you've gotten out now you've got to leave your whole career has got to be secret no those close to you need to know about what you've done you know and it's like what you were saying before we're, we're sort of like well here's here's the morals that we live by and here's the here's the the way that we trained our lives and 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 this can be some of this can be translated into the civilian world, and you know, perhaps you could learn something from it. And hey, I'll learn some stuff from you guys as well. Yeah, I, I you know, one of the one of the one of the things culturally in America, that a lot of people forget, but it's still instilled, is that they look at us as uh, liabilities to society. Mm. I mean, if, if the first take, the first Hollywood take outside of John Wayne was Rambo. Mm. Rambo is a Vietnam vet, special forces vet, who comes back and destroys his entire town. Because the sheriff had beef with him, yeah, and and you know he was an outsider, yeah, and so integrating uh, our warriors, which is only going to get worse or better depending on how you look at it mm. for society, is an important deliberate action and responsibility we we need to, to yeah. take on because controlling the narrative, you, you, yeah, exactly. When you t- when you spend twenty years, uh, an interesting thing is when I got out off of active duty. I actually applied for a job, and I was overqualified for it. I had a degree in crisis management. I was, uh, you know, a senior leader in special forces, and I applied for this job that was going to secure all of Colorado's electric electric power plants. Mm. And I was competing with some guy who who didn't have the qualifications I had. I found out later when I didn't get the job why I didn't get it, mm. and it was because they looked at my career path as a liability because I used the word like sniper or special operations mm. and they thought, Oh, this guy is a liability because he might be crazy. Mm. And, and that the damaging me. thing that we've done to our, 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 uh, veteran communities. And it, it's veteran 
total is we've iso- we've isolated them into a category, right? We've subgrouped them. Mm. And I don't even like to use the word veteran. No. I don't like to use because I, I don't want I don't want people to think that I'm using veteran in my business, in my life, or anything because Man. I'm trying to get a one up. I on totally agree. Else. Yeah, completely agree. It's like yeah. it's like without the veteran title, I could do this shit on my own. Mm. So uh, what I don't like is is society, especially American society, uh, perspective or 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 uh, take on veterans. Period. And so, yeah, I agree with you, man. I, I think there's a place in our society for special operations guys not being cops, mm. not being firefighters, not being not working for anybody. Mm. I see those guys. If you're able to go in with a detachment and change the tides of war in a foreign country, then you need to be an entrepreneur. Mm. You need to be a politician. Mm. You need to be able to affect change at a high level. Mm. And you're better than that. No offense to police officers and everybody else who are doing the grind on, on their own. But when you operate at that level, you should be doing something great beyond uh, the norm. Beyond what people expect of you to come back and do. Exactly. They thought, they're like, Mike, oh, you could be a police officer. I'm like, yeah, cool. Um, dude, I was a sergeant major in special forces. No offense to police officers, but uh, there's so much better out there for us. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I've, I've given up a long time ago feeling guilty about not having PTSD for the things I've done, you know? Everyone expects that you're going to have. Everyone expects that you should have PTSD, or that you. And I, and I'm an advocate for people getting help that have got PTSD. Don't get me wrong, because I've seen guys go through some wicked shit. I'm just made differently, and it didn't affect me. And so, and so, and I'm I'm more compassionate towards it than what I used to be. You know, I I, I now Absolutely. I now no longer you know question every single time we hear someone's got PTSD. Now I'm like, yeah, okay, got it. Because I know that different different things affect affect people differently, but I don't feel guilty anymore for not having it, which is a thing that happened for a while. For a while, I was like, yeah. "Fuck, what is wrong with me?" Yeah. Whereas now, yeah. I'm like, "Dude, I'm whatever. I'm sweet. Like, let's move on. Let's talk about something else. Let's make a positive veteran narrative." We've got a group here called the Young Veterans. Um, they're doing some great work. Um, but for me, it's still like, it's it's still like. It's almost like victim, like we're a victim, not a veteran. Now, what I want to see is only positive talk about, and and they are going through with positive talk. I'm just saying that that whole that whole name, young veterans, made me think. Well, who who cares if you're young, if you're old, or you know, because our veterans were World War Two veterans, and then Vietnam veterans, and then you know, and in between, Korea veterans. They forgot about the Somalia guys, mate. But and then suddenly we had this group rock up called Young Veterans. Because, I, I guess because they weren't getting the credit that they were veterans and in their 20s or whatever it was. But to me, it's just yeah. like, to me, it's like, dude, you're using, it's almost like people are using the name veteran in a title to say, hey, here I am. I'm a victim. Or, yeah, or absolutely. It, it's is that, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong with that. I'm happy to be corrected. Mm. Partly it's entitlement, right? I mean, people want to mm. feel entitled. And I think what uh, I've seen a lot in veterans is when veterans get out, they lose their sense of purpose. Mm. They lose their identity. And so they're not staff sergeant, whoever. Mm. And so uh, they, they don't know who they are. Mm. So then what they do is, you know, it's a, it's a typical human dynamic is they, they subcategorize themselves or they, they associate themselves with a demographic that stands for them. Mm. And what I've realized is, I don't necessarily belong in that group of veterans because most of the veterans, uh, especially the ones that feel entitled, 
aren't like me and my peers because mm. we don't want anything for free. Mm. We want to earn everything that we've done mm. uh, or continue to do. So you're right. I think that there's a there's a level of victimhood because it's like, woe is me. But I think those same guys, no matter what this circumstance or situation, uh, which is the minority, I think those same guys uh, would be milking some system elsewhere in some capacity outside of the military. And, mm. I, you know, I, I stand behind the fact that, yeah, I served, but I'm not going to use it as a catalyst to receive something. Mm. In fact, what I will do is use it as a catapult to propel me into, uh, you know, better exposing my message mm. or allowing people to to maybe perk up because there's no, you know, there's no there's no reservation to me to say I'm using my career path uh you know, spent the last two decades doing optimize my ability to get into the marketplace to be able to say, mm. like, I'm not scared to say that because I, I am. So you, you know, if I, yeah. if, if, if a picture of me on Instagram in full kit gets people, people's attention to actually read what I'm writing, mm. I have no problem with that. No, I have yeah. no, I have no problem with exploiting myself in mm. that capacity because uh, my message is clear. It's not, it's not for profiteering. If I was rich, I, I sure as shit wouldn't be here living in my office space. So yeah, man, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. How many bronze stars do you have? I have a few. I have three. Australian Australian kids would hear that shit and be like, what the... F-? Yeah. I, the first time I met a guy who had two bronze stars, I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then, <laughs> and then, I, and then, and then you find out that, you know, it's a big deal. But when you've done, what, five five trips to Iraq and how many Afghanistan? So I've got, I got eight combat trips total. I have five yeah. in Iraq, uh, two Afghanistan, uh, a combat rotation to Libya. And I got a trip to, to Africa, to central Africa. Yeah. And the guys that you surround yourself there at Fieldcraft survival, there, there's some pretty capable dudes there too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody who we work with is, is, uh, you know, we're at the, the tip of the spear when it came to like operations. They're not guys who wanted to hide out in the schoolhouse. I see what you did there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if, and if, uh, if any Australians wanted to come over, do a destination holiday, come and do one of your courses, where would they find you guys? So we're in Prescott, Arizona. And I, I would say that Prescott, Arizona to me is a, a good representation of America. I mean, the are 20% of our community is veteran, a veteran population. They're very patriotic, conservative. Uh, they're everything that I would want in a demographic of a community that I surrounded myself by. Mm. And it's, we're surrounded by mountains. I'm at 5,000 uh, feet Jeez. in elevation. Yeah, right. um, uh, we're surrounded by trails. It's a it's a beautiful um, place to be. But if they flew into Prescott, if they flew into Phoenix, Arizona, mm. and then drove a couple of hours north to, to Prescott, they'd be in good company. Mm. Yeah, I went to Phoenix uh, in 2005, and uh, and then drove from there to. I think I ended up we ended up going all the way to San Francisco from there. Nice. Yeah, it was good. It's a long trip. Beautiful yeah. trip though. Yeah, it was good. Um, yeah, and I was going to say, what what about things like? Yeah, you, know, you, you you must have people approach you that are about to go on to ranger school or that are thinking about SF selection and stuff like that to train them up. Do you, or is that a market that you haven't looked at yet? So yeah, we've we've tackled it a little bit. So we we get a lot of people that want advice. Like for example, today the local Prescott, Arizona Army recruiter stopping by because he wants us to do a seminar and talk to his families, uh, his guys 
that he's recruiting and their families about joining the military, about special operations. We actually, a couple times a year, we'll do special operations preparation courses. Mm. And in fact, I've had a couple guys from Canada, um, from France, um, and I'm looking forward to maybe guys or, or uh, anybody who wants to come from a foreign country like Australia to come train with us because we do that preparation course. And also on our website at philcraftsurvival.com, we actually have a DVD um, that's called Selected where we talk about land navigation, foot preparation, rucking. Mm. Uh, that's that's meant to educate uh, the consumer on, on on that kind of stuff. So we're, we're open to it. it. It's something that we do in Philcraft Survival Fit where we talk about physical preparation. Uh, but yeah, we, we and I answer probably a dozen messages or emails a day about preparation for special operations yeah cool so most people most of the kids listening or guys and girls listening in australia will find you through through instagram right just mike.glover yeah they can get my uh, instagram at mike.a.glover or they could uh they could email me at mike at philcraftsurvival.com or if they just Google me and they can't find me, there's outlets there. We're all over the place. We're YouTube, Twitter, uh, Facebook. I mean, pretty much every social media platform we're on, we're trying to uh, mm. spread the spread the good word. Any any plans for coming to Australia, mate, and having a look around? Well, man, you got you, we got to link up and figure something out because uh, you know you guys you guys are the the mecca for actual overland everything mm. and so me and kurt actually talked about maybe doing a trip and doing a documentary film about uh australia and overlanding because oh man that'd be awesome uh, there's no there's nowhere in the world where you could drive um without running into terrorists of course but you can you could drive pretty safely for days if not weeks at a time and not see anybody except for the bush oh mate we my, we drove we drove at christmas time from adelaide to perth which is three and a half thousand kilometers um but you know we're planning to go from from perth up to darwin darwin across to brisbane and then brisbane down to back down through to perth in the future which is basically around australia's cutting cutting out the population centers down south but uh yeah i mean that's months of driving you know um yeah although our, our utes aren't as cool as your utes but we've got some good stuff there's some good stuff you can get hold of over here but you can't yeah. get you can't get a tahoe well maybe that you can of, yeah that kind of trip over there would be epic man i you know Maybe we could figure something out. We're actually talking to Overland Journal, which is a big Overland magazine uh, in the U.S. and overseas, mm. and uh, maybe we could do something and, and document it and make it a, a big expedition and trip. Yeah, know, yeah. I think I think landing here in Perth and oh, I know. I mean, either way. Um, hey, Mike. Thanks, man. I know you're. I know you're busy. You don't want you don't want to listen to an Australian SF dude banging on all day. Um, <laughs> no, man. I, I I appreciate you having me on the podcast, dude. I, I'm. I'm actually really excited to to promote it and talk about it because it's not typical that you get to talk to another special operations guy on a podcast from overseas. Mm. Uh, I appreciate what you do. I appreciate your podcast and and uh, man, you got a you got an awesome mission statement and what you're doing and and you know you're you're a facilitator and a conduit for great information that's going to help people's lives and I'm, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do just like we did in special operations uh, outside of that job or that career field. Uh, whatever you need from us, man, we're, mm. we're, we're happy to help. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Appreciate that. Thanks for your service, dude. And I'm hoping to hoping to get over and and check you guys out in the flesh. Be good. Hell yeah, you'd be fun, man. We'll drink. We'll drink. Don't you guys drink Fosters? <laughs> <laughs> Tony Rokoff used to call it piss. <laughs> no one, no one drinks that shit. We that's why we export it. That's why we export it. 
<laughs> you all drink Coronas, don't you? It's the only thing you haven't. It's the only thing you haven't banned from Mexico is Corona. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's awesome, man. All right, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna go back to bed. I'm gonna let you let you get on with your day. Tell uh, Thanks, tell Kurt I said hi. I sure, I'll send him your, your love. Shit. <laughs> See you, man. Later, man. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.